0: Bibles and turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 3 and we continue in our series that we've just started through the book of Judges. And our text is going to begin in verse 12 before we read that. um, Pray for Alina Reynolds and for her baby that she's due pretty soon. And I heard that she went to the emergency room today. Um, I think she's okay. They were doing some tests, though. Uh, but uh, that baby is coming pretty soon, so pray for her. But also, in relation to that, there's a food sign-up sheet for the Reynolds family that's in, on the bulletin board in the hallway, and let's fill that list out and help out and be a blessing to their family um, when this baby comes. And so that list is available on the bulletin board in the hallway, okay? Good. All right. Judges chapter 3, and let's, let's uh, begin in verse 12, and we're going to read a, a lengthy portion down through the end of this chapter. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel, and possessed the city of palm trees. <clears throat> so the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jirah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length and he did grind it or gird it excuse me un- under his raiment upon his right thigh and he brought the present unto Eglon king of Moab and Eglon was a very fat man and when he had made an end to offer the present he sent away the people that bear the present but he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said i have a secret errand unto thee O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat, and Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. When he was gone out, his servants came, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber." And they tarried till they were ashamed. And behold, uh, he opened not the doors of the parlor, theref- therefore they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried, and passed beyond the quarries, and escaped unto Sireth. And it came to pass, when he was come, that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mount and he before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about ten thousand men, all lusty, all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest four score years now all during the 400 year period that the book of judges covers the nation of israel followed a predictable pattern and we've talked about this before the nation of israel they would serve god faithfully while they followed the strong leadership of the judge when that judge would die uh, they no longer had a leader And they would desert God, and they would go back to what Judges says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They would give themselves over to pagan worship. They were in disobedience to God, and they followed after the gods of the Canaanites. When they rebelled against the Lord, God would send His judgment upon them by by allowing Israel to be oppressed by their enemies. After a time of oppression... Israel would repent of their sins and and cry out to the Lord, and God would raise up a deliverer. And God would use that person to defeat Israel's enemies and set them free once again. That is the pattern that we see uh, at work before us in our text today. Israel had sinned again against the Lord, and God allowed and caused Eglon, the king of Moab, to become strong. Eglon invaded Israel... And with the help of the Ammonites and the Amalekites, together those three oppressed Israel for 18 years. When Israel finally came to the end of themselves and repented toward God, God raised up a man named Ehud to be their deliverer. Ehud assassinated King Eglon and led Israel to victory and to freedom. That's the gist of the story that we just read. But that story has a lot to teach us if we'll allow it to. Like Israel, we often follow the same pattern in our life. There's disobedience unto the Lord that ends up in the chastening hand of the Lord, which ends up bringing about the peaceable fruit of righteousness, repentance toward God, and and the peaceable fruit of righteousness and restoration of fellowship with the Lord. Our problem, though, is not the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Amalekites. Our problem is our flesh. And as this text unfolds for us, we're going to see that Israel's enemies are a clear type of our own enemy. Eglon is the perfect picture of the flesh, something that's out of control, something that's self-indulgent, a fat, lazy, evil, full of pride entity or being. But Eglon was also assassinated by Ehud. In Israel's defeat of Eglon, What we see is a picture of the battle that we are supposed to be fighting every single day with our flesh. Every one of us has problems with our flesh. Sometimes we win our battles with the flesh. Sometimes we lose our battles with the flesh. Sometimes we don't even fight those battles at all. And we're literally in a fight in our spiritual life every day. It's a fight that we must win. It's a fight that we can win with the help of God. Amen. Amen. And this passage gives us the help we need to fight and to win that battle over the flesh. And I want to preach to you about Ehud and Israel and their battle with Eglon. And I want us to see that they won that battle over those who oppressed them. And we can win the battle too. We don't have to be a slave to our fleshly passions. We can be free from the grip of sin in our life, and we can walk in victory if we fight that battle and we fight it God's way. And so I want to point out some things out of this passage, three things, in fact. We're going to look at Israel's dilemma, Israel's deliverer, and finally, Israel's deliverance. And I want us to examine these principles and make some applications For us that prayerfully will be a challenge and encouragement to you today so let's keep our eyes open amen our brains alert and your ears keep them from being heavy all right and let's pay attention to the word of god today let's pray heavenly father help us lord i pray for each one that you'd help them to stay awake today and father that the truth would be rich and helpful in our christian life and lord i pray that we'd seek after that bless the preaching and Lord, we ask for your spirit and your enabling today. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing we're going to look at is Israel's dilemma. I want you to look again with me at verses 12 through 14. The Bible says, "...the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord." And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. These verses describe the oppression that Israel suffered, and they suffered that oppression because of their own rebellion against the Lord. Their problems stand as a warning to us a warning to all who would wander from the Lord. And their problems uh, remind us or or teach us of of the same places that we will find ourselves in if we wander away from the Lord. I want you to look at these verses with me. Notice, first of all, their foes. In verse 12 and verse 13, the Bible tells us here that they faced three nations. The, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so God raised up Eglon, king of Moab. In verse 13, it tells us that he gathered unto himself the children of Ammon and the children of Amalek. Israel faced three nations because of their rebellion against God. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. All three of these nations were continual problems for Israel. All three of them were connected to Israel by blood. The Amalekites were the descendants of Esau. Jacob's twin brother. The Moabites and the Ammonites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. You remember after Lot and his daughters escaped uh, uh, and were delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, remember the story, the Bible tells us uh, that Lot's daughters got him drunk and he ended up, they ended up conceiving by Lot and the, and the sons that were born to them were Moab and Ammon of which these two nations were descendants of. All three of these nations worshipped false gods. The Moabites served a god called Chemosh. The Ammonites worshipped a god called Molech. Both of these gods were worshipped through prostitution, as well as child sacrifice. The Amalekites were a nomadic, warlike people. They worshipped a variety of pagan gods. All three of these nations were a continual thorn in the side of Israel. They were constantly attacking, they were hindering, they were seeking to enslave the people of Israel all the time. And it's a great application for us because these three nations picture perfectly what our flesh is to us as a Christian. Powerful, passionate, and persistent. Just like Israel was repeatedly attacked by these nations, the believer is continually attacked by their flesh. Our flesh has its own desires. We talk about this, and we've been talking about it in Galatians on Wednesday night. That the spirit lusteth against the flesh, and the flesh against the spirit, so that she cannot do the things that she would. They're contrary, the one to the other. One agrees with God, one does not. Our flesh has its own desires. It doesn't like the way of holiness or the way of righteousness. The flesh always likes the way of evil. And listen, your flesh will always be drawn to evil. Your flesh will never be drawn to the things of God. Ephesians 2 and verse 2 describes us before we were saved, walking in our flesh. It says, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That is how we were before we were saved. But let me tell you something, friend, your flesh has never changed even though you're saved. It still wants to rule and dominate and control. And it's not always in actions that we live out. It's not always in just horrific sins that we commit. A lot of times, our flesh controls our attitudes and our emotions and our responses. We live in that realm where our flesh wants to control us. I was talking to somebody yesterday or the day before. We were just talking over some of those things and... We're talking about anger and wrath you know you're driving down the highway and somebody comes in and cuts you off and what starts to rise up inside you cut me off i got a few things to say to you an attitude i'm starting to sport and oh what is that that's the realm of the flesh fleshly response it's always working it's always trying to control, and you know what? Even when we, even when listen, even when we give the day to the Lord, we start our day right. And we say, "Lord, I want to give you the day today. Lord, I want your Spirit to control me. Lord, would you do that for me today?" It's kind of a one and done prayer. Good for the day. Fat chance, buddy. And I just had to say, I'm sorry for the way that I said this or talked to these people. And I think I got that covered. And guess what else comes out of my mouth two minutes later? The flesh is always trying to control. The flesh that you and I carry around will do everything in its power to enslave us and prevent us from honoring God and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should not be, be deceived. Our flesh hates God and everything God is. You know that inside of you? There is something that hates God and everything that God is. It's your sin nature. It's your flesh. And the sin nature will never, ever submit to the Word of God. It's got to be forced into submission something more powerful than it. That's how Paul described himself in Romans chapter 7. Remember that? The things that I want to do, I don't do those things. The things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You see, they're foes. But notice the end of verse 13. You see their fight. In verse 13, the Bible says, He gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel, and possessed the city of palm trees. These three nations joined forces. They came against Israel, and we're told here that the Bible says they smote Israel. Israel. The word smote here, it means to strike, it means to smite, to beat up, to hit hard, to slay, to kill. What does it tell us? It tells us that these pagan armies weren't coming for a friendly picnic, they were coming to destroy. Israel was in a fight for their very existence. And let me say to you the battle that you wake up to every single day ought to be just as serious. We're in a fight. In our spiritual lives. The flesh lusteth against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. They are contrary the one to the other so that she cannot do the things that she would. You know what? We all have different areas that we fight in. Not all of us are the same. But if you're saved, you are involved in warfare every day that you live. Sometimes you win that battle. Sometimes you lose that battle. But that is determined by who we yield ourselves to as we fight. Yeah. Romans 6 and verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If we yield to God, we're the servants of righteousness. If we yield to sin, we're the servants of sin. The fact is we're still in a war. The Christian life is not a playground. The Christian life is a battleground. And we need to suit up for war every day. And how do we do that? By putting on the whole armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6. Go over there. Just Keep your place and look at Ephesians chapter 6. Let me say something in passing here. The way to victory is yielding to the Spirit of God. And through the power of the Spirit of God, we win that war. But let me say to you, that is not a passive yielding. There's, it, it's not. It's not that we don't have responsibility. It's not just passively sitting and say, "Okay, God, I'm. Oh, the Lord didn't come through. I fell into sin." No, there's a fight that we're supposed to put up. The Bible says to flee, and the Bible says to resist. We do have a responsibility to fight as we yield to the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, most of you are familiar with this, but Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Here's how you be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You put on. That is a personal choice. That is personal action. He said, you put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you, there is a personal and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We take the armor of God that we need by praying, by reading the Word, by serving Christ, by being a witness. It isn't easy to do that but it's commanded of God that we do it because in that is where we find the armor to withstand the fiery darts. We see their foes. We see their fight. Go back in our text, and I want you to notice their failure. In verse 13 again at the end, notice here that the Bible says that they smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. Now, no words in the Bible are there by random. Chance processes. They're there because the Lord put them there. They mean something. What you need to notice here is that the Bible says that Eglon defeated Israel and Eglon took the city of palm trees, possessed the city of palm trees. In other words, Eglon is establishing some headquarters here. And he establishes his headquarters in the city of palm trees. That's another name for the city of Jericho. Deuteronomy 34 and verse 3 says, And the south, in the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees. Jericho was the first city conquered by Israel when they entered into the promised land in Joshua chapter 6. Jericho represented all the victories that God would give them in the future in driving out the the Canaanites out of the land and giving them the land that He had promised to them. And and what I'm saying here is to, to see their oppressors set up their headquarters in the very place where they had once enjoyed great victory is a shame. Here's the application. The power of the flesh will do the same thing. Just when you think that you've achieved victory over your flesh in some area, just when you think that some area of your life that you have struggled with in the past, just when you think that problem with that sin is settled, guess what? Here comes the flesh, and the flesh is going to do everything in its power to undermine your victories and take back ground that it has lost in your life. Victories that you've won in the past we can become enslaved again into in in areas of our life the flesh is relentless unfortunately the spiritual fight within us is not relentless we let our guard down at times and when we do we lose the battle we fail to pray we fail to read the Word of God fail to take a stand against our flesh We failed to do what the Apostle Paul said that he did in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, he said. The phrase, keep under, when Paul said, I keep under my body, it means to beat black and blue. It's the idea of giving it a black eye. In other words, Paul says, when the flesh rises up, when my flesh rises up, I've got to put it back in its place. I've got to beat it. I've got to punch it. I've got to assault it. I have to deny it. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. But we don't do that in our own power. And it isn't easy to do. When we fail to do, we'll lose the battle. Israel failed. They had once had great victory in Jericho, and now they've lost ground. Go back to our text and look at verse 14, because I want you to see their folly. In verse 14, So then the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Because Israel failed to honor the will of God, they became the servants of Eglon. The word served... It means to work, to labor, to become a slave to. They became a slave. Israel had been redeemed to be the servants of Jehovah God. Now, because of their sin, they would become the servants of a pagan king. That condition lasted 18 years. And again, this showcases the power of the flesh. It has the power to enslave us again into bondage, to lead us away from the Lord. It has the power to make us labor for self every day while we ignore the will of God. It's not what God saved us for, friend. He didn't save us so that we might remain slaves to our sin. He saved us to be free so that we would serve Him and Him alone. But if we allow the flesh to have its way, we're going to become a slave to it again. It'll draw us into its trap, it will hold us there, and it will squeeze the very spiritual life right out of us until we're a shell of what we used to be. The prayer life, the devotional life, the church life, the life of service, devotion and love for God, it falls by the wayside. And you see the places where you once enjoyed victory become the habitation of the flesh again. What a sad place to be for the child of God. But I want to tell you something. You find yourself struggling with your flesh. You find yourself maybe in a place where you used to have victory and it seems like that's gotten hold of you again. You don't have to stay in that condition. The Lord can and will set you free. We see Israel's dilemma. Secondly, we look at Israel's deliverer in verse 15. That was the condition Israel found herself in. Now look at verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Jirah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. This is where Israel found itself. When they finally got tired of the servitude, Israel called on the Lord again. That is a picture of a repentant heart. Israel was sick and tired of their oppression. They recognized again their failure, and they call on the Lord, and the Lord begins the process of bringing them back to himself. By the way, the first step in restoration is always, always repentance. Always. Being in agreement with God, and then letting the Lord Have his way. But I want us to learn some some things about Ehud, Israel's deliverer. First of all, notice verse 15. Notice his problem. In verse 15, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jirah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud the Bible says, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's allotment of land included that area around Jericho where Ehud or where Eglon had set up his headquarters. And so it's logical to think that the tribe of Benjamin would have suffered probably the most or at least uh, continually under Eglon's reign. Ehud... And the men of Benjamin would have had plenty of reasons for wanting Eglon and his armies gone. We're also told something else about Ehud. The Bible says that Ehud was a man who was left-handed. A man left-handed. I've always looked at that. I've always read that in passing. Never really studied it out. But I also know that the Word of God doesn't put anything in there by accident. And I learned something as I was studying through this passage about that phrase. It's interesting. In fact, there seems to be a great number of men from the tribe of Benjamin who were left-handed. In Judges chapter 20 and verse 16, the Bible says this, Judges 20 and verse 16, Among all this people, there were 700 chosen men, left-handed, every one could sling stones at a hairbreadth, and not miss. If you go back contextually, verse 15 says, And the children of Benjamin were numbered at that time out of the cities, twenty and six thousand men that drew sword, beside the inhabitants of Gibeah, which were numbered seven hundred chosen men. Among all this people, there were seven hundred chosen men left handed. So the Bible tells us that Benjamin was numbered, there were twenty six thousand men who drew the sword, and of those numbers, 700 of them were left-handed. What does that mean exactly? Uh, We also can note, and this is kind of a side note, but of the tribe of Benjamin, apparently there were a lot of men who were ambidextrous, who could use either hand. And they talk about how accurate they were with the bow, whether in the right hand or the left hand. But when the Bible says that he was a man left-handed, it doesn't simply mean that he just used his left hand instead of his right hand. Now understand that the right hand represented strength in the Bible, and most were right-handed. And so it's a significant statement saying that Ehud was a man left-handed. The word means this. It means bound up. It means impeded as to the use of the right hand. In other words, what it's saying is that Ehud was crippled on his right side in his right arm, in his right hand. And he was, he was forced to use his left hand because his right hand did not function right. Now, that would seem like a handicap for someone who is a deliverer, right? If the people would have been, would have been voting for a deliverer, Ehud probably wouldn't have made the first ballot. And as we're going to see here, Ehud took what many would use as a liability and turned it into an asset or a strength. But let me say this right here about something that everybody knows. We all have our problems. We all have things that we feel like we are short in. We all have reasons, quote, reasons why we can't serve God and do this or do that. You remember when God called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt? Moses said, I can't. I'm tongue-tied. I stutter. When God raised up Solomon to be king in Israel, Solomon said, I'm but a child. I don't even know how to go in or go out. I can't possibly be king. We all have some issue or another that we think would keep us from serving God in some way. But I have a question for you. Did God not know about your issue when he saved you? Of course he did. And he saved you anyway. God didn't save you so you could talk about the things you couldn't do for God. God saved you to enable you to do the things that only he can do through you. We all have excuses. I can't, like, I'm too old to surrender to ministry of some sort. I've worked so hard and so long. I couldn't possibly do that or I won't go do that. I'm too old. Or I don't know how to preach, I'm not a preacher, and maybe God is saying, I want you as a servant, I want to use you! And we're making all kinds of excuses and reasons as to why we can't. I'm impeded. I don't know. I don't have ability. God didn't save us to tell uh, tell Him of, of the things we can't do. God saved us to enable us to do the things that only He can do. What did God say to Moses when Moses said, Lord, I can't, I, God, I can't do that. What am I going to say when the people ask? And he, God said, You're going to say, I am has sent, me, has sent you. The great I am. And then what happened? A little bit later, Moses was, was, was complaining again or saying how much he couldn't. And God said to Moses, Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses said, a rod. It's just a stick, right? God said, Moses, throw it down. So he threw it down on the ground. And what happened? The stick became a serpent and Moses went, ah, and ran away. Bible says so. The ah part was in the Hebrew. You have to really understand Hebrew to, yeah, to get that. He ran away. And the point that God was making to Moses was, Moses, it's not about you. And it's not about what you think you can do or can't do. I'm the one who's in control. I've got the power. The point I'm making here is we need to stop making excuses about why we can't do this or that. And we need to just yield and surrender to the Lord. None of our excuses changes the fact that when He saved us, he put His Spirit within us. Yes. He's gifted us to serve Him. All we need to do is say, yes, Lord. Amen. Throw out your excuses. And realize this, I'm a child of the King. The King of Kings. The all-powerful, almighty God who does and will do of His good pleasure. Amen. Notice verse, the end of verse 15. you see, The plan. So here we're learning a few things about Ehud, his problem. He was crippled. But Ehud was available, and God chose him. God chose to use him. In verse 15, the end of it, the Bible says here that the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made himself, or made him a dagger, which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the queries that were by Gilgal, and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence, and all that stood by him went out from him. And had came unto him, and he... And he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And he had said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat, and he had put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Then had went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. When he was gone out, his servants came. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked. They said, surely he covered his feet in his summer chamber. And they tarried till they were ashamed. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen dead on the earth. Here is the plan that Ehud put in place. Now, every so often, the people of Israel were, were require, required excuse me, to pay tribute to Eglon. It was sort of like a tax, but it was more like a, an offering of, of worship that they were required to give. And so the Bible says they sent their gift to Eglon with a delegation that was led by Ehud. The Bible tells us that Ehud made himself a double-edged dagger of a cubit length. So it would have been anywhere from 14 to 18 inches long. He strapped that dagger to his right thigh under his cloak, and he went to take the tribute money to the king. His plan was to get Eglon alone, and when he does, he's going to assassinate the king. That was a daring plan. If Eod would have been caught with that dagger, he would have been killed on the spot. But Ehud was a cripple, and it's quite possible that they didn't even search him. What danger could he be? He doesn't use his right hand. Most were right-handed. They would have had their swords strapped on their left side. Either way, however that went, God enabled him or allowed him to gain access. After delivering that money to Eglon, the delegation was departing. And after they had gone a short distance, Ehud came back and told Eglon that he had a secret message for him. The king, supposing that he was going to hear some great secret, tells Ehud to be quiet or be silent until everybody is gone. And Eglon dismisses all of his servants. Now look at verse 20. In verse 20, the Bible says, Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat, and Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. When Ehud gets Eglon alone, Ehud tells the king that he's got a message from God. And so Eglon stands up to hear this message And as he does, Ehud reaches under his cloak. He draws out the dagger and he thrusts it into the belly of Eglon, who was a very fat man. I think we understand why that dagger was 14 to 18 inches long. It needed to reach the vitals to do some damage. And Eglon was a very fat man. As he does, the blade sinks deep into the king's body And the fat closes around the handle of the dagger, and Ehud can't pull it out again. But it doesn't matter because Eglon falls down dead. Ehud locks the doors to that rooftop room where they were, and he makes his escape. Eglon's servants find that the doors are locked, and they think that the king is going to the bathroom. That's what verse 24 means when it says he covereth his feet. Now that's kind of gross, but there's something else that's kind of gross. When verse 22, when it says that he thrust it into his belly and the dirt came out, it means that Eglon's bowels emptied themselves when he died. The locked door, maybe even the odor coming from the room, told the servants that the king was occupied. He was busy. And so they waited. And then in verse 25, it tells us that they waited so long that they were literally embarrassed until they had to do something. And so they went and got a key, and they entered into the chamber, and they find Eglon dead on the floor. But by that time, Ehud was long gone. Now, I realize that that's probably more information than you wanted on a Sunday afternoon service. <laughs> But let me say this to you, those details, even though they can be gross or disgusting, they really do illustrate the nature of the fight that we find ourselves in every day with our flesh. The flesh is nasty, it's gross. And if we're going to enjoy victory over the flesh, we're going to have to do battle with it. While trusting and yielding the Lord at the same time. Jesus talks about the issue of salvation in Mark chapter 9 when he says, listen, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than to go through life with your full faculties and end up spending eternity in the lake of fire. If your foot offends you, cut it off. It's better for you not to have that and to go to heaven than to go through life with all of your faculties. And the point that Jesus is making is there is nothing that is too extreme uh, about your flesh that you should do to it that, that, that overwhelms or overpowers the value of the soul. Now, what I'm saying here is the flesh is still extreme. Sometimes it takes extreme things to defeat the flesh. There's no step that's too great. There's no price that is too high. The flesh has got to be crucified. The flesh is relentless. And the flesh will always bring us to a place destruction and so there's no step that's too great there's no price too high we've got to win that battle and sometimes it takes extreme things we see Israel's dilemma we see their deliverer but thirdly and lastly I want you to note Israel's deliverance go to verse 27 verse 27 and it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet In the mountain of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount and he before them. And he said unto them, follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. Here is Israel's deliverance. The first thing I want to point out about this is that their deliverance involved following. In verses 27 and 28, the Bible says that when Ehud returned from killing Eglon, he sounded a ram's horn. It's like a trumpet. Ram's horns, or trumpets, were sounded for several reasons in Israel. Sometimes they were blown to announce a feast. Other times they were blown to signal a change of location. And by the way, there is a trumpet that's going to sound, and we are going to change locations one day. Amen. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. Sometimes it was blown to demonstrate joy and praise to the Lord. But other times it was blown to call the people to war. That's the purpose here. Ehud gets back from killing Eglon and he sounds the trumpet or the ram's horn and he's calling the people to war. God had heard Israel's prayers. God had raised up a deliverer. Ehud had taken the first step toward giving them victory over their enemies. He'd severed the head of the serpent. The body needed to be destroyed. Now the test was to see whether or not God's people were going to follow the man of God or not. Well, they did, and they achieved great victory. He said, follow me, because the Lord has delivered Moab into your hands. You know what? He didn't take credit for himself. He said, follow me, because the Lord is the one who's delivered you. Their victory involved following. Were they going to follow the man of God or not? Secondly, their victory involved fighting. Verse, the second part of verse 28 and into verse 29 It tells us that Israel cut off the avenues of escape. And it means that anywhere there were reinforcements that could come in, they were cut off. And then they killed 10,000 men that day. The Bible says all the men they killed were lusty. It means they were robust men. They were strong men, big men. And then he says they were men of valor. It means they were men of great physical strength, an enemy that was really strong. But you know what? Regardless of their power and regardless of their ability, they were defeated because God was bigger, and God gave them the victory. Their deliverance not only involved following and fighting, but it also involved finishing Notice verse 29. And they slew Moab at that time, about 10,000 men, all lusty, all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. There escaped not a man. Israel didn't back off until every last one of the Moabites, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, had been put to the sword. It was a total victory over the enemy. So what's the application? Israel's victory has lessons to teach us about our own battles with sin in the flesh. Number one, here's the lesson. God has given us everything that we need to enable us to walk in spiritual victory. If we are struggling with our flesh, if we are defeated with our flesh, if it is overpowering us and we're not experiencing victory over it, it is not because God's resources are weak It's because we're not utilizing God's resources. He's given us everything that we need. He's given us His Word. He's given given us His Spirit. We have the ability to pray, to come before the throne of grace, to find help in time of need. He's given us His presence in our lives. And what I'm saying is, if we fail to yield to Him and walk in His will, we can never find victory because we're doing it in the wrong power source. But if we follow Him, and humbly and faithfully yield to Him, He can and will give us victory in our life. Are you struggling with something? It seems like it's defeating you. Go back to the right power source. Amen? The second thing is this. We need not fear the size or the power of our enemy. The Bible tells us that all the men they killed were lusty men, men full of valor, strong, robust, big armies of men. Amen? But they were overcome by the power of God. And our flesh is strong, our flesh is powerful, our flesh is persistent. But we're to fight with everything that God has given to us. And the Bible says the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. No. No. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You know what a stronghold is? It's a fortress. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds in your life. You know what? The devil comes in. He gains some ground in your life. He sets up camp. He makes a stronghold there. It's an impenetrable force to the flesh, but not to the power of God. We're to cut off every avenue of escape, to not tolerate the least little bit, and by the grace of God, it can be put to death. And here's the conclusion. We all have problems with our flesh our flesh is overindulged our flesh is self-assured it's out of control and the message today is a call for us to take the battle to the flesh the flesh does not have to carry the day it does not have to win victory over us it does not have to claim victory in our life we can be free we take the battle to it God's way by yielding to him by utilizing the resources that he's given us, his word, his spirit, prayer, his presence. And we can't be passive. We can't be passive with our flesh. There is some personal responsibility to fight as we yield to the Lord. We're a lot like Ehud. We're unlikely conquerors. We're crippled in one way or another. We're weak. We're prone to spiritual failure. All of those things, that's what we are. But like Ehud, we can walk in victory if we let the Lord do the work. We need to take the Word of God, our dagger, amen? The sword of the Spirit. Hide it away in our heart. Apply its principles to our life. Yield to the Spirit of God and with the Lord's help, the flesh can be assassinated. Amen? Our flesh is never going to die as long as we live in this body. But it does not have to have victory. Yeah. It's a good lesson. Amen? Good reminder. Let's ask the Lord for His help and His grace. And let's walk in victory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the day and we thank You for the lesson of Ehud and the deliverance that You gave to the people of Israel, how Ehud was, even though he was an unlikely conqueror, he was available, he was your man, you chose him, and in spite of his impediment, in spite of his inability, he trusted in you, and the plan was in place, and Lord, you used him to deliver Israel. And then, Lord, you used him to lead. And Israel followed. And they experienced great victory and deliverance. And they found rest again. In many ways, we're the same way. We're crippled. We're impeded. We're unlikely conquerors. But we don't have to live in slavery to our flesh. By the power of God, by the resources of God, We can conquer and we can live victoriously as you've intended for us to live. And maybe, maybe that's not talking about some major glaring sin in our life that everybody can see and it's just a big blot or blight on our, maybe it's talking about our attitudes They control us. Our emotions and our feelings and our responses, all controlled by the flesh. And we react in the flesh. We say things in the flesh. We hold grudges. We have all kinds of things that maybe we don't really think about, that are fleshly responses that control us. Lord, we need to gain victory over those things as well. We need to change. The flesh needs to be subdued. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be honest with the Word of God and honest with ourselves. Taking a look at the inward man. Taking a look at the way that we think. Taking a look at our life. And Lord, realizing there are There can be strongholds there that I I didn't really see. Sometimes we can feel defeated because we do see it, and it doesn't seem like I can gain victory over this thing in my life. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to go back to the power source, to learn this lesson. It's not about our might, and it's not about our strength, it's not about our willpower. Lord, you can bring the deliverance. We pray that you'd encourage somebody today who might be feeling discouraged in some area of their life. Lord, let us learn these lessons. You've given us all the resources that we need. We have to believe that, and we have to test it and prove it. So Lord, have your way in this short invitation time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.